Everybody knows what it takes to make the human body healthy. But what does it take to make the church healthy? Hi, this is Greg, one of the pastors here at West Valley Christian Church. In this series, we'll be taking a look at the book of 1 Timothy and what it takes to be a healthy church. We hope you enjoy. Whether you're listening in the morning, in the afternoon, or in the evening, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is John Stahlberger, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here uh, on staff at West Valley. And so the last several weeks, we have been going through the book of 1 Timothy, and we've been looking at what it means to be a healthy church and what a healthy church looks like. And I, I really hope that this series has been an encouragement to you as we've looked at the topics of grace and prayer and leadership and truth. And, and let me just remind you, 1 Timothy is a book written by Paul to Timothy, and Paul is like, is like a father writing to a son. And, and so as we come to chapter 6, and we're wrapping up our, our series, and Paul is wrapping up uh, his letter, he's got some more, some more important topics that he wants to hit uh, with Timothy. And so um, if you've read through the book of 1 Timothy, you know that Paul has been talking a lot uh, and encouraging Timothy a lot uh, about things like with people teaching false doctrines and being led away by things that are meaningless and kind of wasteful arguments. And so in chapter 6, Paul comes back to this conversation once again. And Paul is especially concerned with those who are trying to reap a financial gain under under the, the disguise of godliness. And he's concerned about people whose real goal is to profit financially and not to lead people into a deeper relationship with God. And so in response to this, Paul attempts to show Timothy a healthy perspective on money, on godliness, on contentment, and on giving. And so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to be, eventually we're going to be reading verses 6 through 19. Uh, But before we read the passage today, I want you to think about this. When are you the happiest? Like when are you the most content? There, There are lots of things that, that bring me happiness. There are lots of things that lead to contentment. Um, as I was thinking about this sermon, I, I was actually thinking about uh, a situation that just recently happened. My, my oldest son made his first grown adult purchase. He purchased a truck. And, and up until this point, he had been driving cars that, that Christina and I had purchased. And so he bought a truck, and he was so happy with it. He brought it home to us on the weekend so we could see it, and it was really cool. There was only one problem. He still had our Toyota Prius sitting out in front of his apartment down in Carlsbad. And so on Sunday afternoon, when it was time for him to leave, I drove with him down to Carlsbad so I could pick up the Prius and drive it back here. Now, if you know me at all, you know that I don't like traffic. I hate traffic. I hate sitting on the freeway. I don't know how I've lived here my whole life. Uh, Matter of fact, on the freeway is probably the most difficult time I have being a Christian in my life. I hate traffic so much. That's there's a reason I only live a half a mile from the church. But, but i got to be honest with you, this drive was really different because I really enjoyed driving down to Carlsbad with my son. You see, we hadn't seen him in three months. When the coronavirus started, he's 24 years old. We knew that he wasn't going to stay at home, and we just said, Andrew, don't come home. You can't come home for the next several months. And so this was the first time I'd seen him. And so it was really cool just driving down to Carlsbad just spending time in the car talking. As a matter of fact, him and I have probably driven down the 405 together hundreds of times uh, because of soccer. And yet this time was a little bit different because this time as we were making that drive, I actually got to relax. You see, I was sitting in the passenger seat and he was the one doing the driving. 
And so I got in that passenger seat and I just relaxed and we talked and we, and we, we talked about how many times we've come down to that Orange County and San Diego area for soccer and all the different places that we've been. And so it was really just an enjoyable, relaxing drive. And so when I got there, I, I said hello to his roommates. I grabbed the keys to the Prius and I turned around and drove home. And even that two hour drive home was pretty enjoyable. And, and after four hours on the freeway, that would not normally be when I'm in a happy place. But on that drive home, after spending two hours with Andrew, I just drove home and I was thinking about all the things that I have to be grateful for, all the reasons that I am so thankful to God for in my life. And I was thinking about it, and, and my family might not even believe this is true, but as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking, I'm the happiest and I'm the most content when I'm with my family. When I'm with them, that's when I'm the happiest and most content. I don't really need a lot of other things if I'm with them. And so this morning, I want us to go ahead and look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 6. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so as we're going to talk a lot about godliness a little bit later, but I want us to notice some reminders and some warnings that Paul is giving to Timothy and to us in this section. You may have heard this phrase your whole life and not even realize it was in the Bible because Paul says we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. This hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years. No matter how much stuff we accumulate in this life, it isn't going with us. And so I want to talk about our stuff for a minute. The first thing, if you're going to take notes, I want you to write this down. Stuff isn't bad, but we need to remember that it's all temporary. Like, think about the stuff in your life that you love. I was thinking about our house. This summer, it'll be 20 years that Christina and I have lived in our house. And our house is nothing special. It's a small house, but you know what? It's our house. And so I love our house, but the reality is it's temporary. At some point, it's not going to be there anymore. I love my car. Like, I love my car. I love driving in my car. But the reality is it's temporary as well. Uh, I, I love the Dodgers, okay, and they may or may not be temporary, but, but actually my favorite baseball player of all time is Ken Griffey Jr. I loved watching him play, and so I've collected baseball cards for most of my life. And I'm holding, I don't know if you can see it, I hope you can see it, but I'm holding these cards right in front of me here. This is Ken Griffey Jr.'s rookie card, and it also is Ken Griffey Sr.'s rookie card. And these are my two favorite baseball cards. Guess what? I love these things, but they're temporary. They're not going to last forever. Now, I've got them encased in hard plastic, so they will probably last longer than my house and longer than my car, but the reality is, they're temporary. I, I don't know what it is that you love, but everything that we love is just temporary. None of it's going to last. None of it's going to go with us when we die. Second thing I want you to write down is this, and this one's uh, important as well. Stuff isn't bad, but we need to remember that it won't bring us contentment. Stuff isn't bad, but it won't bring us contentment. If we try to find contentment in what we have, or how much we have, it will never be enough. 
If we try to find contentment in what we have or how much we have, it will never be enough. As I was reading for this sermon, I read um, from a, an old Greek philosopher, uh, somebody was quoting him, and his name was Epicurus, and he said, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. Give me a barley cake and a glass of water, and I'm ready to rival Zeus for happiness. Let me read that first part again. To whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. And later on, when he was asked the secret of happiness, his response was this, add not to a man's possessions, but take away from his desires. And so even as I was preparing this sermon and I was thinking about the words of 1 Timothy chapter 6, I was concerned because these words in 1 Timothy 6 are a lot like a foreign language to us today. This is not the message that we are bombarded with every single day. He, he's writing, a, Paul is writing to Timothy and he is talking about contentment and wealth and he's saying things that are really contrary to what I believe we are being taught today. And so I pray that the words of Paul to Timothy would impact each of our hearts and our minds today. We can have stuff, but it's not going to bring us contentment. The next thing I want to point out is this. Stuff isn't bad, but we need to remember that chasing it can lead to a lot of harm. Stuff isn't bad, but we need to remember that chasing it can lead to a lot of harm. I, I spent a lot of years working with teenagers. And, and I always like to clarify this whenever I make a comment on parenting. I've seen good parents have terrible kids. I've seen terrible parents have good kids. And I've seen all of the other possible combinations. But as I think about some of the kids that I have met, and having said that, I've encountered a lot of kids who could have used a little bit more time with their mom and dad in a little less stuff that their parents were providing for them. Sometimes parents were so busy trying to provide for our children, and what they need most of all is time with us. And so we can chase after all those things that we think we need to provide, but the most important thing is time spent with us. Um, I've seen people that, have, that we've prayed for them to get a job, and we've been praying and praying and praying, and then I've seen that very job that we prayed for lead them away from the Lord and lead them away from being at church. I've seen a lot of people get distracted by that thing they just had to have. And so when we chase after stuff instead of after God, we're in trouble. The last thing on this point is stuff isn't bad, but chasing after it can cause us to miss what is already right underneath our noses. Stuff isn't bad, but chasing after it can cause us to miss what is already under our noses. Um, I came across this story. Everywhere I read says it's a true story, but I just couldn't believe it. So I'm just letting you know that now, that I don't know for sure that this is a true story. But this story, I think, proves a point. It says this, there was a farmer who was wealthy. And one day he had heard tales about exciting stories of other settlers who had made millions by discovering diamond mines. And so after he'd heard about uh, all these other diamond mines and how much they were worth, he quickly became dis discontented, even though he was a wealthy farmer himself. And so realizing that the African continent was rich in diamonds, the farmer became determined to have a mine of diamonds for himself. And so he sold his farm, left his family, and went off to search for those diamonds. He spent the rest of his life wandering through Africa and wandering through Europe, searching for diamonds without success. Finally, broke and desperate, he threw himself into the water in Barcelona, Spain, to his death. Meanwhile, 
the person who had purchased his old farm one day led his camel into the garden to find water to drink. And as the camel put, as the camel put its nose in the shallow waters of the garden brook, he found a large and unusual black stone in the stream which cut through the property. It turned out to be a great diamond of enormous value. And then he discovered that his farm was covered with all sorts of beautiful and valuable gems. It was to become one of the world's richest diamond mines of all time. The largest diamond on earth came from that mine. You see, the farmer had owned literally acres of diamonds, but had sold them for practically nothing to go in search of them elsewhere. He died broke, and he died miserable. How many people, how many of us, have been blessed beyond measure, and yet have failed to see it, and then have ended up losing it? Let me be clear, this, this passage that we've looked at, and that we're going to keep looking at, it doesn't say that money or wealth is evil, but our love for it and our pursuit of it can lead to all kinds of evils. Uh, one of my favorite commentators is a guy named William Barclay, and I, I like him just because he's simple, like I am, and, and I think most of his commentaries have just really practical things to say. And as he was writing about this passage, he said this, He said, contentment comes when we escape the servitude to things. When we find our wealth in the love and in the friendship and the fellowship of people. And when we realize that our most precious possession is our friendship with God made possible through Jesus Christ. Let me read that again because I think it's so true. Contentment comes when we escape the servitude to things. When we find our wealth in the love and the friendship and the fellowship of people. And when we realize that our most precious possession is our friendship with God made possible through Jesus Christ. And so in verses 6 through 10, I I think the key words for us today are, are these seven words. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 2,000 years haven't changed the truth of that sentence. The most important thing that you and I can chase after is godliness that is paired with contentment. Let's look at the next section here in 1 Timothy 6. We're going to start in verse 11. It says, but you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called when you, were made, when you made your confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And so as Paul is talking, he's talking about godly pursuits, the things that you and I should be pursuing, the things that, that Timothy should be pursuing. And the first thing he says to him is, hey, listen, flee from all those worldly pursuits. Run away from all the things of this world. And, and he literally wants them to run away. And I think of the passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that tells us to throw off everything that is hindering us. We would do well to listen to the words of Paul here, that we should be running away from these worldly pursuits and that we should be running to godly pursuits. We could spend all day really talking about the six traits that, that Timothy is told about by Paul, but I just want to briefly mention them and talk about them for a second. The first thing he says, you should pursue righteousness. 
And we've all heard righteousness defined in a lot of different ways. But as I was reading it, I came across this definition for righteousness. Righteousness is giving both to people and to God their due. A righteous person is a person who is doing their duty to both God and to others. You know, that sounds a lot like that passage in Matthew chapter 22 that Pastor Rob is sharing with us all the time about loving God and loving people. And so we are called to pursue righteousness. Secondly, we are called to pursue godliness. And and this is when we live our lives with the constant knowledge that we are in God's presence. And we try to be the people that he wants us to be. And we're striving to behave like he would want us to. For this one, I'm reminded of 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, where he says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Godliness is us doing our very best to walk like Jesus did. Next, he's told to pursue faith. And this is when we trust God. And, and when I think of faith, I think of another word that goes right with it. When we trust God, when we are putting our faith in God, then we are going to be obedient to God. Like I think of faith and obedience go hand in hand. We believe something to be true about God and then we do our best in our lives to live it out. And I also think of there being a sense of loyalty that comes along with this idea of faith. And so faith and obedience, like I said, go hand in hand. We're to pursue love. And we're we're familiar with this word love. The love that's expressed to us. And Paul tells us to Timothy to express the love that's expressed to us through Jesus. His love for us was and is unconditional. It wasn't based on our response. It wasn't based on whether we deserved it or not. He loved us, knowing that many of us would still reject him and reject that love. That is the kind of love that we are called to have as well. And and it's easy for us to love people like us. It's easy for us to love people that agree with us, that think like us. But Paul and Jesus are calling us to love even people that don't think like us us at all. Even to those that are nothing like us, that that have different goals, different agendas, we are called to love those people. Next, he says to pursue endurance. And endurance is persevering despite suffering and adversity. And I suspect as a young pastor, Timothy was probably well aware of suffering well aware of having to deal with suffering and adversity. And, and, and many of us are quick to give up when things get hard. But he, Paul is telling Timothy, and I believe God is telling us to hang in there, to endure. Um, later on in his second letter to Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, listen, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so suffering and adversity shouldn't surprise us as Christians, And we are called to endure. We are called to pursue endurance. And then lastly, he tells them to pursue gentleness. This is a harder word than maybe some of the others to explain, but I I think the best explanation for it is really simply understanding the way Jesus lived his life. To the hurting and to the broken, Jesus was a beacon of hope. As the church, Paul is calling Timothy to be like that. As the church, we are called to be similar. We are called to be a beacon of hope to those that are hurting and broken. And and guess what? We can't fix that. We can't fix that hurt and that brokenness, but our Lord and Savior is able to. We can't fix it, but God is able to. And so we need to be bringing people to that gentleness of Jesus. I think of Jesus 
being like the most tender of mothers with their infant for those of us that need that. And that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't tough, because if you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus was tough with people that, need, that needed to have someone be tough with them. But he offered that gentleness in abundance. Um, Pastor Rob shared this verse just a couple weeks ago, but in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, I, I think of this when I think of the gentleness of Jesus. He says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is still offering that gentleness to us today. And as a, as a church, we are called to be offering that gentleness to others. We, we aren't Jesus, but I believe we're called to do our very best to be like him. And that passage really defines gentleness for us. So we're to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. I want us to read one last section here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to read verses 17 through 19. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In the same way, they will lay up treasure for, treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. As I read those three verses, I think of these as being like guidelines for us handling our wealth. And there's a couple of important points that I want to point out from these verses that I think are important for us to draw our attention to. First, Again, I think I said this earlier, but first, there is nothing wrong with having wealth. Paul is not condemning anyone for having wealth, but he's warning us about putting our hope in our wealth. He's warning us about putting our hope in our wealth. We should be putting our hope in God because our wealth can be very fleeting. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. And so again, being wealthy isn't a sin, but we have to understand that the wealth that God blesses us with comes along with a responsibility. And as I was thinking about this this week, that privilege always comes with responsibility. Any kind of privilege we have always comes with responsibility. And so if our wealth ministers only to ourselves and to our families, then it's not honoring to God and most likely is going to lead to our demise. Second thing I notice in here is before you look at your neighbor's, and tell them what they ought to be doing with their money, you should probably realize that Paul, I think, would put all of us that are they're listening to this into the category of the rich. Okay? Like, as you watch this today, you might be saying, no, Pastor John, I'm not wealthy. Okay? But I want you to think about this. Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have electricity in your home? Do you have water that runs in? Like, are you able to get water from your kitchen? Okay? Because we... Here, we take that for granted. But there are hundreds of millions of people in our world that don't have those things. Hundreds of millions of people in the world that do not have those things. So you may not feel rich when you compare yourself to some people around you, but compared to others throughout the world, most of us would qualify as being incredibly wealthy. And so Paul's words to the wealthy in this passage, to Timothy and to us, apply to each of us as we are listening to it. And as I've already hinted, 
uh, at this. But the third thing I think in here is that, you know what? We are called to do something good with our wealth. We are called to do something good with our wealth. Verse 18 is one of the keys. It says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Paul is telling Timothy, and he's telling us that we need to be generous with what we have. Wealth that's built up for selfish reasons isn't healthy, but wealth that is used to help improve the lives of others is honoring to God. Even more than that, wealth that is used for helping others and honoring God is wealth that is building up a reward for us that goes beyond this world. You want to build wealth that will last forever, then be generous with what you have now. A wise man that I was talking to this week about this sermon said, true wealth is not how much you have accumulated, but rather how much you give away. True wealth is not how much you have accumulated, but rather how much you give away. Like I mentioned earlier, we've been looking at the traits of a healthy church. And this is where the rubber meets the road in this sermon, because a healthy church is generous. Okay, A healthy church looks for ways to bless those around them. A healthy church is made up of individuals who are honoring God with their generosity. And I really believe on every level that can be measured, West Valley Christian Church is an incredibly generous church filled with incredibly generous people. Now, having said that, I want to challenge you and I want to challenge me to do even more. I want you to look for opportunities to be generous that maybe you just haven't even seen in the past. I, I again would say that the members and, and regular attenders of West Valley Christian Church have always been incredibly faithful when it comes to our tithes and our offerings. And so the reality is, I don't even feel a need to tell you to do that. I would just encourage you to continue to do that. And if you're a person that hasn't been tithing or given an offering, I would encourage you just to begin. And I really feel like that's all I need to say about that. But I want to encourage you guys to look for other opportunities to be generous. It could be an opportunity to help an individual or a family or a charity that you happen to look up and that you happen to believe in. Um, Like I said, it could be helping a charity that's near and dear to you. Because in reality, it goes way beyond our finances even. Because some of you might be sitting there and saying, I don't have a dime to give. Well, you may not have any money to give, but you can also be generous with your time and with your talents and with your abilities. As Paul said, I'd encourage you to do good and to be rich in good deeds. I encourage us all to be generous and willing to share. You know, the last couple of years on Monday nights at the church, uh, we've been offering a class called the Financial Peace University. Uh, it's, one of D- it's Dave Ramsey's class. And, and one of our members, Bill Rose, has led that class. And I I appreciate Bill's faithfulness and his generosity with his time and his talents to lead that class. And and a couple years ago, um, I I took that class myself. My wife had taken it many years earlier. She tried to get me to do it, and I was like, no, thank you. Uh, And I finally went around, got around to doing it. And so I I did the class. It was awesome. And um, in the class, I got this book, and I I hope you could see it. It's called Dave Ramsey's uh, Complete Guide to Money. And so I, as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought, well, let me see if I could read some stuff. And, and to be honest with you, I never cracked open this book the whole time I was in that class. And so when I opened it a couple weeks ago, it was like one of those fresh new books that it's never been opened, except for it's probably about eight years old. Uh, but as I was reading through a section in the book, I came across this story of Dave's. 
And, and I thought it applied to us so well. So I want to read it to you. This is not my story. This is Dave. So I used, and he's talking about his children. And he says, I remember one time, a particular long time ago, I was up early doing my Bible study. It was about 5.30 in the morning, and I was reading through John's Gospel. It was one of those passages that I'd read a thousand times. It was earlier than I usually got up. So I admit, I probably wasn't as tuned in as I could have been. But I was up, had the coffee going, and was doing my best to keep my commitment to a daily Bible study and prayer. That's when I heard the sound that makes every parent wince. Kablink, kablink, kablink. It was a telltale sound of a five-year-old coming down the stairs, dragging his security blanket at 5.30 in the morning. Daniel rounded the corner to my study and gave me a big smile that showed the gap where his front teeth were missing. Good morning, Daddy. And I'm always happy to see my kids, but it was early, and I knew a happy five-year-old at 5.30 in the morning turned into a tired, grouchy five-year-old by 5.30 in the afternoon. This wasn't going to end well. Besides, I was trying to do my Bible study, but Daniel walked up anyway and said, Daddy, can I sit with you? So I put him on my lap, and he gave me a big kiss and said, Daddy, I love you. That's good. Life doesn't get much better than that. I went back to my reading, and a few minutes later, I just got flooded with emotions. Tears started to run down my face as I sat there and reading scripture with Daniel on my lap. He asked me what was wrong, and I said I was just reading John 3.16. It says here that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son. I looked in his eyes and said, Daniel, you're my only son. I can't even fathom what God must have gone through giving his son for the sake of the world. That's when it hit me. I'd read these verses before, but something in that moment unlocked the most important fundamental spiritual and financial principle there is. We are made in God's image, and God is a giver. Giving is the key that unlocks all of our potential in our life and in our money. Dave says something in that story that was so key. Because we are created. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us that we are created in God's image, and John 3.16 reminds us that God is an incredible giver. So much so that he was willing to give his only son. You and I, as Christians, we have been called to be givers. And not just with our wealth, but with everything that we have. We aren't generous to try to earn anything from God. We are generous because of what he has already done for us. He's called each one of us to be generous. What an incredible example. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to think about when is it that you are happiest or when is it when you are the most content? And the answer I told you was when I was with my family. But the true answer for each one of us, if we want to be truly happy and content is this, we are always going to be the most content when we're at the center of God's will for our lives. Sin brings discontentment, but obedience to God brings joy and contentment. And so today I would encourage us once again, to find that contentment and being generous like God has called us all to be. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity that we have had to go through the book of 1 Timothy. And Lord, I pray, Lord, especially for us right now as we think about this message and we think about happiness and contentment and our stuff and our wealth, I simply pray that you would help us to be the generous people that you've called us to be. No matter what that looks like, whether that's giving away a lot of money or giving a little money, whether it's just using our time, talents, and abilities, I pray that you would help us to look for opportunities to be the generous people that you've called us to be. And thus we can be the generous church that you've called West Valley Christian Church to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at wvcch.org or you can join us live in one of our Sunday services. Have a great day. Forget all my rebellions that you've always